Hey friend, thanks so much for meeting me here at Frothy Monkey in beautiful downtown Franklin, Tennessee. It's a great place to get a good cup of joe and share together in some good conversation. Anyway, be looking at the menu. I know you're new here. Decide what you want. Text it to me. I'm going to go ahead and get in line and place our order. Hey, you're listening to Guat.Rocks, God, the world, and other things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, always advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. This is Season 5, Episode 90, titled Zero Tolerance of Tolerance. Subtitle, Revelation Chapter 2, Verses 12-17, through 17, The Church of Pergamum. The Apostle John writes, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum was the third city in the circular distribution of Jesus Christ's book to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It was 55 miles northwest of Smyrna and the northernmost city of the seven churches. It was geographically diverse, residing in the Caicos River Valley in juxtaposition to the almost 1,100-foot-tall mesa, which was exposed on three sides that provided an impressive backdrop to the city. The Acropolis of Pergamum and the city as a whole was the site of a vast number of temples to pagan gods, including the temple in honor of Rome and Augustus Caesar. Pergamum was chosen as the headquarters for the emperor worship. The amphitheater of Pergamum, draped down the side of that Acropolis starting from the top, had a capacity of 10,000 people constructed in the 3rd century BC and was one of the steepest amphitheaters in the world. The rich and educated city was one of the major cultural cities of the Greek Empire and taken over by Rome just prior to the turn of the first century AD. Most historians and biblical scholars think Jesus' reference to Pergamum as the throne and dwelling place of Satan is most likely in reference to the temple of Augustus, though the temple to Zeus at the top of the Acropolis may also be the point of reference. It is very possible that the seed of Satan Jesus refers to in this letter to Pergamum is an assessment of the gross spiritual darkness of the city as a whole due to its massive spiritually pagan culture and an astonishing temple architecture and polytheistic worship with the Acropolis intentionally patterned after Athens. It would be worth your time to click on the hyperlink in the show notes to BibleWordNow.org and check out the panoramic 360 photo taken atop the Acropolis. When you see the beautiful location and the archaeological remains for yourself, it is noticeably clear just how successful, artistic, and developed this city was. As we read this letter of Jesus to Pergamum, the historical veracity of the city 
Its power and pagan influence manifested in its archaeological remains gives an immersive sense of what the Christian church was up against there at the close of the first century AD. The cultural influence and prejudice against the exclusivity of Christianity resulted in, as church tradition records, the first martyrdom in the church. Jesus calls to their memory Antipas, appointed by the Apostle John as the bishop of the church at Pergamos, whose refusal to validate and capitulate to the cult of emperor worship and proclaim Caesar's divinity earned him a death sentence. According to church tradition, Antipas was placed inside of a bronze bull and burned alive. Though Pergamum exceeds just about all of our modern American cultural centers in beautiful location, excellence in exquisite architecture, and handcrafted opulent temples and structures, and intellectual pursuit, we can relate in a major way to the cultural diversity open to every form of pagan worship, celebration, and thought, yet violently hostile to Christianity and the followers of Christ. The pivot point always falls upon the fulcrum of the cross and the faith of Jesus. All of the other avenues of idolatry and pagan worship are congruent, congruent with the exaltation and worship of Satan. Only the faithful witness of Jesus, like Antipas, are odd man out. Polytheism has a seat at the table for every god, that's God with a lowercase g, except Jesus, the one true God. Against this pressure to conform and comply to the cultural norm, Jesus shows himself to be the mighty warrior ready to deal forcefully and decisively with the tolerated heresy in the midst of the church. He is pictured as having a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he is ready and willing to wage war against these heretics. His stern commandment to the church to repent and fight against the overt, manipulative, enticing, subduing, adulterating, stumbling blocks of false teachings cast by the followers of heretics Balaam and Nicholas, who were immersed in the habitual pattern of sin that is manifested in real idolatry and immorality, is more compassionate response. It's a more compassionate response to the heresy than for Christ himself to show up and clean house. Let me say that again. In other words, Christ's commandment for the pastor, for that messenger of the church of Pergamum to take action against these heretics is a much more palatable solution to the problem than for Jesus himself to have to take action. Jesus makes it clear that he takes personal offense at teachings in the church that lead the people to act contrary to his living, active word. Things get bloody when Jesus wages war. Ouch. <laughs> there goes that harsh speech again, Kenny. Friend, when are you and I going to wake up that Satan is real? His mission is to take every person down in the depths and destruction of sin and he concentrates his efforts in geographical locations where he has an open door and celebration of the unrestrained indulgences of the flesh, which result in real idolatry, immorality, and the exaltation of Satan and his followers. Ultimately, there are only two teams fighting for turf on the earth, Team Satan and Team Jesus. It is not a fight with an unknown outcome. Team Jesus operates from a place of victory and ultimate conquering, but the brief moments of human history that the Bible calls only a vapor against the solidity of eternity is very real with eternal consequences for every human in the balance. Humans are the only things that transcend the terminal condition of planet Earth. The church at Pergamum was lauded by Jesus for their firm grip on Jesus' name and their trust in him when it was under fire from external persecution, but Jesus is now calling on them to stand up to heretics within their own camp. 
The promise Jesus gives to the church at Pergamum and ultimately to all the churches who obey Christ and stand against internal heresy is twofold. Number one, there in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, the first promise is the gift of hidden manna. And the emphasis here is on the word manna, then on the hiddenness. It is a secret food protected from theft and contamination. There's a hyperlink in the show notes that takes you to Exodus chapter 16, where manna is fully explained. It resembled coriander seed. It was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. God ordered Moses to preserve two quarts of it, which was placed in the Ark of the Covenant and preserved throughout the generations so that the Israelites could see the bread he fed them in the wilderness when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. A perpetual reminder of his miraculous perpetual provision and sustenance. The secret manna clearly implies that those faithful to Christ will have transcendent fellowship with him. One theologian said that it is the life-sustaining power of the sacred humanity now hidden with Christ and God. The second gift is a white pebble. The word actually means pebble, little stone, with a new name on it known only to the recipient. In context, the meaning of this obscure statement broken down is this. The first thing we know in context, it is a gift given by Jesus. The second thing, it is a unique gift unique in celebration of conquering. The third thing, it's an individual small stone or pebble. The fourth thing is it's white in color. The fifth thing, it is a bearer of an exclusive secret, a new name. The faithful conqueror in Jesus has a name that can't be hacked. No stolen identity in heaven. In the historical context, historically black and white pebbles were used in courts of justice. Black pebbles for condemning, white pebbles for acquitting. Besides here in the book of Revelation, the only other use of the word is in the New Testament, Acts chapter 26, verse 10, where Paul speaks of his life prior to becoming a Christian. It says that he cast his pebble against the saints of God, voting to put them to the death. The white stone with one's name on it was used also in history past to admit one to entertainment venues, and also in the cultic religions, it was considered an amulet or a charm. Some speculate that the new name belongs to Jesus, as in Revelation chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 12, where Christ says, He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. The fact that only the recipient knows the name points to a new name given to the recipient. If it was referring to Jesus, that all the saints would be privy to the same name. In a nutshell, the gifts convey divine provision, protection, identity, and fellowship in Jesus. How does this apply to all of us today? Christ commands us to do the difficult thing and chasten those in our midst who teach doctrine that derails the Christian from a living faith in Jesus that negates sin. Satan is very real and in our midst, not only through the external persecution of those outside the church, but within the church working through those who follow false teaching. When the leaders and people refuse to act, Jesus will move into swift action that results in severe consequences. Jesus does not desire for things to escalate to that level. What does it look like when corrective action is left to Jesus? In our recent history, a few examples include the total dissolving of Mars Hill Church, one of the largest Christian churches in America, following the public revelation of the total corruption of its founder and pastor Mark Driscoll, the embarrassment and irreparable damage done to Liberty University, the largest Christian university on earth, following the public revelation of the total corruption of its president, Jerry Falwell Jr., and the destruction of the apologetic ministry of Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM, 
And just yesterday, it announced that after the revelation of the prolonged and an incessant sexual and emotional abuse by its founder, Robbie Zacharias, who at the time of his living, he just passed recently, that he was the most renowned defender of the Christian faith. See the hyperlink in the show notes for the Christianity Today article titled, RZIM Will No Longer Do Apologetics. Friend, I can guarantee you that in each of these cases, the core leadership surrounding the leaders of each of these entities knew exactly what was going on, and they refused to act either out of fear of loss of job, loss of position, loss of prominence, or face the charge of insubordination, which is a scourge to bear in any camp, be it Christian or corporate. Do you think these gross failures please the Lord or make Him smile? Is Jesus happy that these terrible things have happened to top key entities that were once champions for the advancement of the gospel and the warring action Jesus took that results in public awareness? Is Jesus edified when the church's dirty laundry is aired out publicly? Of course not. Just think if those who knew what was happening had taken hard action to address the decay and contamination of these key leaders and their core beliefs that manifested themselves in their habitual actions. In the recent revelation of the corruption of the pastor Carl Lentz of Hillsong NYC, Brian Houston, the founder of Hillsong Church in Australia, took hard action and terminated Lentz from his position. He cited breach of trust and moral failure were given as the cause of termination. Houston noted that he and his wife had known Carl Lentz's wife, Laura, her entire life, and Carl for over 20 years. Brian Houston and the foundational leadership did an extremely hard thing that was ugly and painful. Sadly, though, the termination still entered the public arena. Friend, we must obey Jesus and act against false teaching before it takes root in our midst and damages and takes down the people who claim to know Jesus. Is it an unpardonable sin to follow after heresy and heretical ways? Of course not. Jesus can forgive and heal. Due to the biblical requirements of church leadership, Certain positions may no longer be open to people with certain failures, but all Christians who are overtaken in the fault can be forgiven and restored to vibrant gospel ministry. Those who do the hard thing and stand up to damaging teachers and doctrines are guaranteed ultimate victory in Jesus and His eternal divine provision, protection, identity, and fellowship with Him. The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament book of Romans chapter 8, verses 31-39, through 39, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And with that, my friend, I bid you peace.